Hello and welcome to Lady Time, a podcast for those of us navigating midlife and more people are welcome to listen to. My guest today is Mary O'Callaghan and she is the director of Uskult. Uskult is a wonderful holistic therapeutic centre in Dublin 4 in and Mary O'Callaghan is the founder director of Uskult. She's an accredited psychotherapist and supervisor and has also been exploring meditation practices for nearly 40 years. During that time, she spent eight years living as a Buddhist nun and underwent intensive training in Eastern psychology and meditation. She has led meditation retreats in Europe and Asia and is passionate about integrating mindfulness into everyday life. Mary, you're very welcome and thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, Carol. It's lovely to be here. Thank you very much. Mary, I just want to ask you then about yourself, if that's okay. I'd like to ask you about where you're from and how you got into meditation and Eastern philosophy. Mm. Well, I'm from Cork. I was born in 1956. And um, yeah, I think um, it's kind of, it's. I, I sort of, I suppose what I kind of feel often is that our past is such um uh, has such an impact on how we live our lives. So I'm I'm very aware of that, I think. And one of kind of my formative experiences really, I think when I was quite young, um my grandmother and my sister died. I had a, my mother had a, a thalidomide child who lived for forty one days. Oh, and really? uh, yeah, it was it was quite um yeah, it was quite a, a family kind of tragedy. And I think it was around a time when people didn't speak a lot about, you know, these kind of emotional kind of things. And often I think, well, I think always when things are left unsaid, we carry it in different ways, you know. Absolutely. And, um, Absolutely. Yeah, so yeah. that would have been a, a a big sense of something quite big happening in your house, you know. It was huge. Yeah, it yes. really was. And I think my grandmother had died about six months before. So my mother was carrying this child for three months. And then, you know, kind of, um, yeah, I, I, I can only imagine what it must have been like for her. And she never spoke about it, really. Yes. Um, yes. It's funny, isn't it? How how everyone was so different then that we didn't process externally our emotions, really. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was like, keep quiet. I think my father actually felt it. In a funny way, he was more active in his grief. Not that he spoke about it, but um, I think he was quite tearful. I remember somebody saying that, you know, when he was at work, sometimes he would just break down and cry, but didn't have the words to express what it was. Which mm. So there was that kind of vulnerability there as well. And I think that deeply kind of impacted me in some ways. Yes. Um, and I think with my grandmother, I was very close to my grandmother. And I think that was, I think one of my earliest memories was, sort of sitting in front of the fire with her and she had a piece of toast at the end of a fork and that feeling of kind of comfort, you know. So um, Oh, that's beautiful. That's yeah, beautiful. Uh, and, yeah. and 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 that's such a nice memory to have. So mm. what age were you, did you say when when I she was four. So I was preschool actually, then I went to okay. yeah, I started school. So there were all of these kinds of things. But I think one of the things that that did I've always had a fascination with death. And I think that has really kind of dictated um, kind of the trajectory of my life. And I know when I was like, uh, I think when I started going to secondary school, I used to have this habit of calling into funeral parlors. In Cork, you could see people laid out. And my friends Mm -hmm. thought this was really weird. And it wasn't morbid. It was like, what's going on? 
I had this yeah. kind of like it was yeah it was like I I just found the whole thing of death somebody disappearing I couldn't kind of make sense of it um and at that and there, there were people in the funeral parlor like people would kind of you know be taking care and they they were very I think they were quite sensitive and they kind of welcomed me in which was also kind of curious and I'd sit there for 10 or 15 minutes and just you know taking I don't know what I was taking in actually it it sort of was um yeah it was, it was a very curious kind of uh, preoccupation <laughs> Well, it's interesting, um, isn't it? Yeah. So actually, Jill re- interviewed somebody ages ago and she talked about, what's her name? Elaine from Donegal. She talked about this fascination with funerals and funeral right. parlours. And she said she'd love to be a, she'd love to be a funeral director or something like that. It, it's yeah, but everyone's different. And so that became a thing for you. That's lovely, actually. Yeah, it was. It was a thing. And it wasn't. It was almost like I kind of felt that I connected maybe to my grandmother or, or you know, yes. something like that. You know, yes. I never met my sister, actually. So that was a kind of oh, you know, some big event that there was no kind of connection with, really. So that was. Yes. Uh, and you yeah. knew about it, even though I there knew was about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that mu- yeah. yes, yeah, that must have had a big effect. I can. And I remember imagine. her funeral as well, like sitting because my mother didn't go to the funeral. She, we were standing at the bedroom window watching my father going down with this little white coffin, do you know? And uh, oh. it was kind of, you know, a tender moment, do you know? And it's sort of, I think these are kind of my earliest memories. Yeah, that's yeah. such a strong image. That's that's like from a movie. Really, that's, that's quite yeah. a, a strong image. It's beautiful, but uh, very moving. I know in my family there was a death, uh, unexpected death when I was very young. And it's not that I have any visual memories, but I do have a, a sense of a mourning after it. You know, that things changed, you know, mm. things changed in our household from being a, you know, a normal bubbly household to being a quiet quiet household mm. yeah mm. so it must and have I remember been... actually as well because I, I don't think I really even though I miss my grandmother I didn't really grieve for my sister and yes. about seven years ago I went into um, a sort of little retreat myself a, a sort of a solitary 10-day silent retreat and oh, at the yes. end of it I remember there was um uh, a little um I'm not sure what it was like um oh a hare gave birth to a little, um, I don't know what a baby hair is called. Um, I had just come out of the meditation, my meditation little room, and the hair ran off. And um, I was kind of, and it left the little baby hair there, you know. And um, I was like, oh my God. And I didn't touch it because I knew that if you touched it, it would impact. And actually, the mother never came back. And the hair, the baby hair died. And suddenly it was like this kind of grief for this little sister that I'd never met just suddenly came over my body and it was like oh my god and uh, it was almost like that was a moment when I expressed something that I had held for so long inside of myself and I think that's kind of really intrigues me how we hold memory in our body Um, yes yeah that's fascinating isn't it amazing how nature teaches us things and that reflection when you came out with the the actually happening in front of you that's amazing yeah, something touched you know that's yes awesome. yeah. yeah 
And that sense, I think somebody once said, and I think it's so true, that we kind of bury our feelings alive. And that when that moment of kind of um, something kind of taps or touches into it, and then suddenly there's this kind of the body frees itself. So there was a kind of liberation in that too, you know. Yes, yeah. There's so much in that. So one, the is it Vipassana? Is that what that's called? A silent retreat? Yeah, yeah. inside retreat, you have a passion. I mean, it I, it wasn't necessarily a passion. It was just, yeah, I was just kind of sitting and walking meditation. So, yeah, it wasn't as intense because the Vipassanas are very kind of, you know, up at five in the morning and sort of okay. sitting. Yeah. And I was not being able to move. But it was more just kind of, yeah, yeah, it was kind of intense and it was silent, but it was a private, a private retreat, you know. So, uh, Beautiful. Oh, that sounds gorgeous. And then giving yourself the space, your body and your mind a space in, in those days to to actually notice things like that hair. Like, yeah, I'd say very few people have seen a hair give birth. Yeah, I didn't see it give birth. I just saw the baby kind of the. Okay. What are they called? Is they not? The, I'm not sure what a baby here is. A vixen or something? I can't remember. But... I don't know. That's one of yeah. those uh, questions on crosswords frequently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I was going to say something beginning with L, like a lin, some a lineage, a lin. I don't know. Somebody will correct no. me. One of my friends and Kerry will correct me. Yeah. Um. Well, that's beautiful and such a profound experience. Thank you for sharing that. So a fascination with death kind of took over you as a young person a little bit yeah yeah and I think that was then um I think I also kind of I really didn't kind of I when I was in Cork I just really didn't like school and stuff and did very badly and I think I was also in a way I think at that age I was kind of there were questions about life that I kind of that interested me more than the kind of rote learning um And I think I was quite a distracted kid. Um, and also I kind of found the whole kind of, I don't know, the I found Ireland very oppressive at that time. It certainly was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, OK. Yeah. There's so much in what you're saying that I find really interesting. The. The body holds memories. You said that a few minutes ago, if I just go back to that first and holds them alive. So when when we're triggered or when we meet something where that that is awakened in a way, yeah. is it something like that? That that the yeah. emotion can come out as if it was still present. Or, yeah, I'm not sure if I can put the right. I, yeah, no, I I remember. I I I mean, I I I articulated that more fully when I so I left Ireland when I was twenty. And went and lived in Scotland. Um, yeah, one of the things that I did there was I, I kind of got, I was quite wild. I think I got into the sex and drugs and rock and roll for a few years. And I had quite a few um, acid trips. Okay. Um, and had one really kind of difficult one, which was which really kind of transformed my life as well. Because I was, I was kind of having a bad trip with a number of friends of mine. We were sitting around a fire. It was kind of like one of these prehistoric kind of scenes and uh, they were all having really really good trips and I was having a terrible trip actually um, quite frightening and it lasted for about I don't know 30 hours or something oh my goodness yeah very frightening yeah life life 
night kind of changing in a way. And I remember my friend turned to me and he said, oh, don't worry, Mary, it's just the drug. And I said, no, it's not. If it was the drug, then you'd be experiencing the same as I am. Yes. And I suddenly yeah. at that moment, I kind of realized this was it was something about one's own mind. And I became fast. That, that question kind of became fascinating for me. Um, and then I went to I, I went to France and I was working in the vineyard very soon afterwards. And there was a, uh, this woman that I met and she came with a book and the first lines in it were the source of all joy is the trained mind and the source of all unhappiness is the untrained mind. It resonated with me and I went off then and did a retreat. I went off to India soon after that and did a retreat. And that was the a 10 day Vipassana retreat. And that really blew my mind because what I and I thought I was going crazy during that time as well, because what happened was all the memories of my past just surfaced. And I got a real insight then of just what we hold in our body, because we were sitting kind of, it was a silent meditation. It was initially, it was for 10 days. And after three days, I just felt like, oh my God, I, it was almost overwhelming. Yes. Uh, and I was going to leave actually, because I kind of thought I can't, I can't, I can't handle myself. <laughs> Uh, of which I think we are a handful, actually, to be honest. Each one I of agree. us has deeply. I agree. But I got a real sense then of the of the of the memories that are stored in the body. Wow, I agree. I I think those retreats. I haven't been on one, but I think that they could be very full on for some people who've who've never sat with themselves, and then you only have yourself to sit with, and you can't talk. Yeah, yeah, not easy. Yeah, but and often there isn't psychological help, you know. Yes, I think I kind of really gravitate between spirituality and psychology. Do you know what I mean? Because often what we face when we go into these retreats are very early memories that are much more of a psychological nature. Yes, um, and for years I actually kept very away from the word spirituality because I just became fascinated by the body. And and the spirit seemed to be in contrast to the body in some way. And I kind of felt, actually, it's about embodiment, essentially. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. um, I still actually, to be honest, I have difficulty with the word spirituality sometimes. Yes. Um, myself. Yes. I, I don't, I mean, I know people use it in different ways, but I, for me, it's like, if I can just come to terms with my body in this life, I'll be really happy. <laughs> you know and yes you seem to be a very spiritual person but that's the word that's more yeah, yeah I get yeah I get it yeah yeah yes because it kind of is connected with so many different things in our culture now and it, it's not always nice things that we I you know that it's associated with spirituality but it's also it's a completely personal I think as well it's a very it? personal word and so yeah. it's it's just I think we all have our own kind but I think we all choose different arenas that we want to focus on do you know what I mean and uh, absolutely absolutely and so is that what brought you into psychotherapy that interest in embodiment and and the body holds memories and yeah I mean I yeah. think what happened then I when I saw that experience of uh, the kind of acid trip and um, meeting this woman, these actually two women when I was in France and they had just come back from a retreat in India. And I thought, actually, do you know, I think I'm going to go to India. And uh, I, I was working in the vineyards because I went and lived in, in France for a year. <clears throat> and that was kind of interesting too, because I had had 
I, it was like I just wanted to. I, when I was living in Cork, I was brought up in a community. I had I lived with twenty eight cousins. All my aunts and uncles. We lived next door to each other. A strange vision of my uh, grandfather who had a lot of land, and he had this okay. vision. Oh, I get all my siblings, all my children can have a little plot of land. <laughs> um, so I found that a little bit well, somewhat claustrophobic to get away for. Um, so I went up to France uh, picking grapes and then somebody offered me a little house there that I could work the vineyards. So I spent a year quite solitary. Okay. Um, and it was actually it was a, a, during that year that I met this couple of women. Do you know what I mean? So um, that had come back from the retreat in India. Whereabouts in France were you? I went to the Corbiere. So oh, lovely. Was, uh, down uh, quite far south and... Um, and I didn't speak French or anything. So it was like this kind of very kind of sort of reclusive year, really. Um, but a very, yeah, it was it was kind of I, I think I just needed to just try to get some handle on who I was, you know. So um, and that year proved to be kind of lonely at times, but also I think it gave me some kind of resilience, you know, that I could survive on my own. Um, very brave. I think it, in retrospect, I think it was. I'm not yes. sure if I would do that now. Um, mm -hmm. But I think when you're young, you kind of have this sort of spirit of adventure, you know. And I think it's also something that I really appreciate about the time that I was born, you know, where you can take years of leisure and just get into that kind of exploration, you know. Whereas I think now with young people, there's a pressure to go to university or to get a career and to go into that ladder. And I, I sometimes I feel really sad about that, actually. Yes, yeah. Yes, there's a lot of pressure to to get everything done quickly and to to be in the system of yeah education and 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 it's great to hear that you didn't do great in school because it isn't all about school. No, yeah. I went actually back to college in after I came out of the monastery. Uh, I went back to university and I think in my um from thirty three until um. 44 I did a degree postgrad and master's you know in in sort of psych in different ways and uh, trained to be a psychotherapist where did you do I, that I, in uh, I went to East London University City University and then I did a master's in Jungian and uh, post-Jungian studies in Essex so I did all my training uh in England and that was really kind of nice because I think I think somewhere, even though I wouldn't have acknowledged it, I always had a complex around not accomplishing things in school. You know, I was kind of, yeah, distracted and a bit wild and a bit unruly. Yeah, and, and did pretty well in university, but it was kind of strange because I had kind of failed all my exams. And my I, I left after the intern. I basically failed the intern. And um, when I did my degree, I got a first-class honours, you know, and my mother came over to... To, to London to kind of celebrate and I'd never told her I got a first you know it was kind of strange it didn't even occur to me and my professor had phoned me and said you know that's really good you got a first and I was oh yeah that's great and I sort of realized that it's kind of I think I'd always kind of thought that people that did well at school were swats yes so I had kind of funny thing and then suddenly I got this and it was I had this ambivalent relationship to it you know what I mean? that's amazing but, it's such a big yeah. achievement to get a first. My goodness. Yeah, it was. I suppose it was that kind of thing because I always thought that I was. I I didn't think I was stupid, even though somewhere I kind of it was, it was, there was there was a complex. I think I did have a bit of a chip on my shoulder about it. So, 
I think that was a kind of important phase, actually, just to kind of gain some kind of confidence in, in my own sort of thing. And also, I was very interested in Jungian psychology. When I left the monastery, I did Jungian analysis for about 10 years. Can we go back to the monastery? When did that happen? Yeah. So um, let me think. I So I went over to when these when these two women came and I kind of kind of got this sense of the mind was the kind of source of happiness and suffering and all of that, which fitted in with this experience I'd had on the acid trip. Uh, I went to India and then I did a, I, I said I was doing that 10 day retreat. And actually after, I think three days, like the first three days, I thought I'm getting out of here. I can't bear this. You know, this is like, there's too much. I can't handle myself. <clears throat> and then I think it was on the fourth morning uh, we were doing these this uh, standing meditation. So you get up at about five o'clock in the morning and then you do a sitting meditation, you do a walking meditation, you do a standing meditation. And at one moment I was, uh, it, I did the standing meditation outdoors and I was standing in front of this kind of flower bed. I hadn't even taken any notice of it before I started standing. And the practice was you go and you close your eyes and you do this body scan, you kind of come back, sweeping up and down the body. <clears throat> And suddenly the, the sun started to hit me. It was like it was it was soon after sunrise at this point, I think. And uh, I opened my eyes and I, and these flowers were so vivid, like they were so alive. And uh, I kind of got this insight, really. And it was a very embodied insight. It was like, oh, my God, when I'm alive, life feels alive. And uh, my father had grown these flowers like they were tulips and roses. And uh, it was like I felt like I was kind of tripping again because they were so vivid and so alive. And that then made me stay on in the retreat because I thought, oh, my God, what else am I missing? So it was like this real kind of uh, recognition what meditation can offer us and especially yes. meditation in the body. And then I actually stayed on for another 10 days. So I did kind of most people left after 10 days and I did 20 days on the trot. And it was like that was life changing, you know. Um, and then I, I kind of, uh, so that then I think I may have come back again and started to earn money. Oh, no, but then I went and did a retreat in in, um, in Nepal. There was a monastery there and met two teachers, Lama Yeshe, Lama Zopa, both of them who have passed away now. And, and they really kind of inspired me. And this was the t Tibetan Buddhism. So I think um, within about a year and a half, I decided to become a monastic, which was very early on. And uh, yeah, so then I kind of, I think, yeah, I was kind of. What did that um, mean? What did that mean? It meant that you, you lived really, um, you lived in a monastery, you shaved your head, you took on the robe, you, you went into kind of a lot of study and meditation, you were celibate. It was very kind of intensive and it was a very academic kind of um, school of Buddhism. So there was a lot of study involved which I kind of liked at the beginning. And it was helpful given that my I didn't have much of a formal education. So we did a lot of kind of logic and philosophy and psychology. And I think for the first, you know, four or five years, I was kind of in this state of, oh my God, these amazing teachers, everything was amazing. And I got into a lot of idealization. But soon okay. after that, about five or six years, I felt that I was becoming more and more disembodied. So the first experience that I'd had of really feeling connected to my body um, and yeah, really living from that place, I had kind of, I felt that I was living from the neck up. I almost felt that I was like a head with a pair of legs. 
and I'd lost my torso. And um, which is how a lot of people are at the moment. There's a lot of heads walking around the planet. There are. Yeah. It's a very painful place to be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I really felt this sort of sense of alienation and disconnection. Um, and what then age I, were you? What age were you then in 20? So it was, it was, I was in the monastery from 25 to 33. Okay. Yeah. So it was quite a formative period of my time as well. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then I, I took a little bit of time out and went over to, because I was having a lot of dreams, actually. Kind of Dreams are always something that have kind of, even before I got into any of this stuff, I've always been aware of my dreams. Even as a child, I used to kind of get into. Kind of, what kind of dreams do you have? Various dreams, but I think the, the dreams that I was having, uh, I think for the last years of my training in Buddhist in, in the Buddhist monastery, I was having a lot of dreams about the body and about mm -hmm. blood okay. and about um yeah yeah just the sort of flying you know I was yes. flying yeah. a lot and sometimes I get caught in electric wires and be dragged down to earth um and there were sometimes I'd wake up and I felt that I could fly yes uh, and I think wow. they were all sort of symbolic of actually flying from myself you know okay uh, yeah so uh that was, um, yeah, that, that, so yeah, I think for the last few years I was feeling quite, yeah, unhappy. And also there were, like, as I was getting more into this, I was hearing about sort of different kind of scandals, you know, that, because I think the form of Buddhism I got into was very much idealizing particular people, you know. Like gurus, <laughs> is this like specific? Yeah, like gurus, yes, yeah, yes. And that they were, they were kind of put on a pedestal. Yes. Yeah. And I think there was a certain point when I kind of realized it was like I had the same kind of uncritical faculties towards them, I think, as we often have towards the Catholic Church. Yes. Yeah. But some part of me felt like a kind of Roman Catholic Buddhist in some ways. You know? Yeah. Well, you can't deny it when you have it in your upbringing, really. It's, it's yeah. part of your structure or your part of your. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> Jill, who does this, she's the co-host. She was brought up Presbyterian, but she's always says she's agnostic. I think she says she's agnostic. She's no beliefs. But I, was mm. like, I said, yeah, mm. but you can't deny your Presbyterianism. It's just inbuilt in you. Exactly. <laughs> you know, her work ethic and everything is so Presbyterian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that also gave me a sense, really, of how difficult it is to change our kind of character structure, you know, that we carry these. It, I, I think actually it's psychological or spiritual transformation, however we decide what it is, it's uh, it's really challenging work. Oh, it is. Yes, it yeah. really is, and 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 it's like, yeah, it's, I, yeah, you can never on some level. I think you, you know, I think Freud said you kind of live in accord with your complexes. Do you know what I mean? You don't kind of. It's it's, it's quite hard to really changes so I think for me there's been a lot of humility in that because I think when I got into Buddhism first and meditation and really kind of felt like I accessed quite sort of um, yeah certainly spacious and free states of mind I think it's it's been a much more humbling journey to actually really kind of when the chips are down it's a struggle you know um, and I mean, I suppose I've come to kind of realize that 
it's really about embracing our vulnerability. Do you know? I think Brené Brown talks a lot about that, but it's actually it's yes, about- yeah. It's it's yeah. The whole this whole world of psychotherapy and psychology it's it's moving. It's not. It's like it's not. You know, I I feel like it. What you brought in Brené Brown, it's it is about exposing our vulnerability in a way or showing it or not being afraid to show it and not having it only in a room with somebody but um you've done that's a quite a formal training really when you think about it with the buddhist monastic life and that's that's pretty incredible Mm. incredible really Mm. yes and i'm very in many ways i'm so grateful for it but what i find now is that i'm you know i think i i'm kind of much more interested in kind of the early Buddhist teachings, I think in a way it, it took on a lot of kind of cultural accretions. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, I think I tried to become almost like Tibetan in a way as a kind of rebellion against my Irishness or something. But actually, and when I kind of go back to the earlier sources of, of Buddhism, I kind of find that they're much simpler and much freer in a way and much more adaptable. I think that's why you know, there are so many different forms. And I think my interest now really is, you know, really seeing how we have the kinds of insights that we have as a kind of, you know, in our Western culture and how they can really kind of, um, yeah, how we have to reinterpret these things from our own context, you know. And I and I do think that they're very adaptable, you know. Um, yes. Yeah. We learned a lot of psychology about sort of our developmental issues and projection and complexes and all of these things that have almost become part of our language, you know. And these insights, I think, were hard won around how we behave as human beings. And, and then I think Buddhist psychology can, you know, Buddhist psychology doesn't care anything about developmental stuff, you know. It really is. It's not interested in that, actually. It, it assumes a kind of adjusted... I don't know, ego in some sort of way, even though, yeah. Um, and, and I think most of us are very far from that. Yes, I think so. And I think it's moving away from that. But I, 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 um, there is a, there is a need, though, for uh, having a look at our early, early experiences and how they form us, isn't there? Maybe not for everyone, but there is a need to, un- if we're into understanding ourselves. Um, and, and psychotherapy looks at that more, doesn't it? Or did it yeah. for you? It, I think it does. And yes. I think, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. So I think, yeah, and that that for me is really, so what I notice when I work both with myself or when I work with other people, I think when we get psychological insight, there's a kind of spiritual freedom in that. Yeah. You know, something it's like, because I mean, that's what I love about the Buddha. You know, he said there, are, you know, it's like there are three things that we have to overcome, our greed, our ignorance and our hatred. You know what I mean? It's yeah. as simple as that. Yeah, and um, you know this kind of grasping at this sort of identity that we have so strong, and I think that's one of the things that I really learned as a, almost as a small child, and and for better and for worse, but that it's like we're living in an incredibly fluid, unpin-downable world. Do you know what I mean? And um, that's the sort of yeah, coming to terms with that. And I, I think that plays out on me sometimes. You know, people say, oh, you should get somebody to help you to get a vision of Oscar, you know. And I can never do it. I can never, I suppose, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised at myself that I've managed to keep a business together for nearly 20 years because I've never had a vision. Well, it looks like you had a vision somewhere because it's yeah. a very it's a very beautiful space. It, it means a lot to a lot of people. I love it. I love it as a space to hire a room. So just to, to share with our listeners, Mary um, founded and directs a lovely uh, Georgian house in Dublin 4 on Pembroke Road. So it's very close to the city centre. And it's uskult, which means open in Irish. And the door is open a lot for people to walk in and make an appointment or see a therapist. It's everything from psychotherapy, yoga class, qigong class, massage, mm-hmm. um, sound bath, sound healing, retreats, mindfulness, meditation. There's That's so compassion. much goes on in those doors behind those yeah. energy work, which is what I do there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's art therapy room. There's, there's just a beautiful space that you curate mm. and I I absolutely yeah. love it but it, it came about but and I think this is kind of also part of I don't know maybe it's kind of funny you know I think once we embrace death in some way like kind of that there's a kind of trust in life and I've kind of always felt that that it's like I find it very hard to plan but I think that once we kind of start to be in the in the moment that I think we we sense opportunities more do you know what I mean and I mean that's how Oscar came about really when um when I when I was when I came back to Ireland and I was looking to rent a room and I, I just rented a room in Oscar you know and it was kind of nice and there were a lot of um I think legal people and accountants and stuff renting it and they all left and the landlord then offered me the space to see if I wanted to make something of it so it just emerged out of kind of like out of nowhere and I thought oh yeah that's worth a try you know and then people started to gather and uh, so there was something very organic about it whereas I think if I had thought I want to get a healing center together I don't think I would have had the tenacity to do that Um, and I think I'm just very aware that things arise out of so much more than oneself you know yes yes absolutely absolutely oh that's really interesting that's so interesting. I, I, I didn't know how it came about. So that's lovely to hear that. Yeah. Um, oh, so, yeah, it was meant to be. It's, it feels like it maybe, was meant to be. Maybe, yes. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's true. I mean, I think it served a lot of people. And it's kind of interesting, you know, because when we got it first, it was kind of, there was a kind of, I don't know, it was kind of, there was a sort of bare feeling or something. And I remember there was a, a group of people that started meditating there in the morning and, uh, People would come first and they said kind of cold. There was a kind of grey carpet and it was physically, it was kind of, and people started to meditate. And literally within a month, people were saying, I love the energy here. This is kind of, <laughs> and I, even though I've done a lot of meditation, I'm not so much into energy very often, but I do feel the kind of calmness. But it was striking that people were picking something up, you know, and I think it definitely. Um, yes, I've definitely heard that. I definitely know a client or two that love the energy of the place. They just love it. They'd move in if you let them. <laughs> yeah. And so how is it going? How is it 20 years on? How How is Uskult? Yeah, it's, it's um, yeah, it's it's doing well. I mean, we, we managed to survive COVID, which was no small achievement, mm-hmm. I think. And 
Yeah, so it's it certainly have, has another, we just renegotiated another three-year lease. We've okay. got a, a new landlord, so the old landlord kind of has left and somebody else has bought it. Very, very lovely man. And I think he really appreciates what the spirit of Oxford is about, really. And uh, so we have another, uh, we've got another three years. I'd be 71 then, so I'm not quite sure where my energy will take me, do you know? So it's uh, yes. Yeah, it's a happy place. I mean, I, I must say that there's never been and I literally mean that even if I'm in a good mood or a bad mood myself, I've never felt bad going in. I've never kind of not wanted to go into Austin. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, oh, it's great. And it became you kept it going through through COVID time. So the place was empty. I used I used it a lot then because I saw people. But uh, you went online. You do mindfulness uh, retreats, don't you? And mindfulness classes. I definitely know friends and clients who went online to your yeah. your courses, and they were really uh, they loved them. Yeah, um, that so was you... really my 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 very dear friend Mary Kennedy. Mary. Um, oh, yes. She's much more kind of innovative and kind of with it than I am. And she's, she phoned me, I think, about a week into the lockdown. I said, Oscar has got to do something. And I said, like, what? You know what I mean? It's like COVID. And she said, we have to do something online. And I was like, oh, my God, I, I don't, I, I, I'm actually quite shy about putting myself out there in a way. And I said, I don't want to do anything online. You know what I mean? And she said, yes, you will. And you can, you know. And <laughs> so we just sat down and we organized. I think we just did a few hours and we put together a course and. I think there were about 800 people applied for it or something. It's kind of, wow. I think this was a free course as well. So, I mean, yeah, but uh, it was great because I think we could only take 120 or something at the time. And a lot of people just stayed for the whole two weeks with us. Or two weeks or a month, I can't remember. And it was really kind of lovely. And you could really feel, I think at that time, it was so important. And it really gave me the confidence then to kind of do more online stuff, which I did for a while. I'm not doing any online stuff now, but uh it was kind of one of these um, when you sort of step beyond your limitation, you know. So, yeah. Um, that was kind of fun. And then, I mean, one of my big things at the moment is the self-compassion. Yes. And, uh, and I really love that curriculum. I don't teach mindfulness, the MBSR course anymore, but I, because I have, I think for me, I think I have, I, I think I'm quite a compassionate person in a way. And I was, it's very easy for me to be compassionate to other people and to kind of understand and to see the vulnerability. But I don't think I was that compassionate with myself yes. often. Yeah. Um, and I did the training with uh, Neff and Germer and uh, Kristen Neff and Germer. And it really has made such a, a kind of difference. And I, I really, I think this is, I think compassion and really understanding what it is. It's not narcissism. It's not self-indulgent. But to actually be as kind to oneself as often we are to other people is such a challenge. And I think it's really once we can start to be compassionate, it's like our psyche of we create a safe space inside. Um, and I, I love teaching the self-compassion course. I, I really do. I, yeah. I think self-compassion is I think that's the key to, to healing. I think that, like yeah. that's when you go deep, deep, deep inside. That's what heals us if we're, if we're going to heal is is having that self-compassion towards our you know, self-compassion that voice to turn that you know critical voice into a loving voice mm. yeah and probably more important now too yeah i think that that, that yes learning to cultivate a compassionate voice towards ourselves or just a loving voice so often we have a driven you know, a driven voice that's mm. 
maybe critical or come on you can do it let's mm. get out there you know mm. instead mm. of compassion well i think compassion says you can do it and go out there go out there with tenderness do you know what i mean and i absolutely. think absolutely there's so much comparing nowadays like that and the whole social media thing that actually we, the critic has kind of is on steroids you know so i think it's really um it becomes much more, so much more important. And it's great to see kind of, often we have a lot of young people kind of coming, you know. Mm. I kind of wish that I had learned that myself when I was much younger. And it's one of the things that I really kind of love about the Buddha, because he said, no matter where you go in this world, you'll never find anybody as worthy of, of compassion as yourself, you know. And that actually, I think we know now from psychology that what we internalize, we project, you know, so we're much more likely to, we have compassion towards ourselves, we're much more likely to kind of beam that out, you know, whereas I think if often if we're more compassionate towards others, we can easily become a doormat, you know, so it's. Um, oh, that's very profound. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's true. It's so true. Um, so before we finish up, and thank you very much, Mary, I just wanted to ask, thank you. I wanted to ask you about, because you've mentioned death again, what is your view on death after coming through all that spiritual journey and through, you know, maybe not spiritual, but that journey through France and uh, India and Nepal and, and England and back here? What's your view on death now? I suppose I see it as a kind of mystery and um, I I kind of, yeah, I I mean, I think death, I mean, I do think, and I probably have always thought that life is a preparation for death in some way. Oh. Uh, I I think so in a way. I think it's, and also it's like, I think there's, I think death is happening all the time in a funny way too, that I think that challenge to kind of let go with dignity Yes, is a huge, it's a huge uh, issue. And I mean, I suppose somewhere maybe I feel that we die how we live to some extent, you know. Yes. So I'm always kind of, how that affects me kind of in my day-to-day life is kind of watching my struggle with letting go, you know. Yes. And sometimes it's a struggle and I mean, I think deep down, I'm, you know, it's like the, the unknown is always so fearful, you know. And I suppose I take refuge a lot in my own body. And that's one of the things that you're going to lose with death. Yes. Yeah. You know, so um, so I think mm-hmm. I, I start to see it more as kind of the unknown kind of mystery. And I think and I know that the more I can stay open to that. That. um yeah, that, you know, that life is so mysterious, you know, in some ways we kind of, I, I heard a lovely story recently, which probably connects with death. And it's a true story where this woman was walking in the Camino because her sister had died in Australia and uh, she wanted to do the pilgrimage for her sister. And as she was walking, she met this woman and she was telling this, this woman was actually from Australia, from the same area as her sister. She was telling this woman about her sister that died and that she was doing this pilgrimage for her sister. And the woman said nothing. And then the next day she actually shared with her, she said, I am the doctor that held your sister's hand when she was dying. And 
when I heard that, I was like, I mean, I feel it now almost a tear. Yeah. And yeah. Um, uh, and I kind of think that for the, the stories like that are so healing. And I think that there's something about that story that tells us there's some deep connections going on that in our busyness and stuff, we forget how we're connected, do you know? So, um, yes. Wow. Uh, that is fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Wow. Yeah. It moved me to tears. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh, my goodness. And that and, she had given the woman space to not jump in and say, I knew your sister. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she came back the next day. Oh, my goodness. Wow. That's amazing. And there's that rhythm, I think. And sometimes I think I know when I, you know, go to Plum Village in the south of France or go to, go on retreat, there's a different there's a different rhythm. There's a different. It's almost like has, life has a different music. There's a there's ways of connecting that seem so far away from the the busyness and the rush and the pace and the projects and the da 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 da. You know that. I suppose that's the kind of world that I want to kind of aspire and try to settle into. You know. Yes. And how often do you go for a retreat? Um. I I well I spent about three or four months in France every year and I hang out a lot in Plum Village and stuff like that. And I, I, I have a daily meditation, do you know? So I kind of, I think now, I mean, I did a lot of retreat in my life. I, I, I'm doing less retreat, but I'm really trying to bring that retreat sense as best I can into kind of the kind of way I'm living my life, you know? So my daily practice, and I think a lot of it for me is actually, because uh, I think partly, you know, I, I sort of, it's it's to ground myself in the here and now, do you know, to ground myself in the present. So retreat is less important to me as such, but I would like at some point to do maybe, you know, I think as, you know, as Oscar, maybe, you know, after that, I think if I'm still around, I'd like to do a lot more intensive retreat, do you know. But I feel like I'm learning more about life at the moment. And I've been in a relationship for the last I don't know, 20, 20 years when I came back to Ireland, I came back and my husband is here. So it's like I'm living a different kind of, yeah, different sort of thing. So I'm learning about I'm learning about relationships and the complexity of relationship, you know, and that's not easy. That's the most difficult retreat kind of open heartedness all the time, you know, so we, we challenge each other yeah. for better and for worse. Yeah, well, look, that's true, because that's the field that we do a lot of our work in and we meet our not so nice part of ourselves. <laughs> and that's why compassion, self-compassion is so important, you know, it's again and again, come back and uh, yeah. what's the word, ha- have a new rebirth, you know. Yes. Oh, I do a, a meditation in the mornings as well. I do on uh, um once a fortnight online and that's what I was talking about this morning was that reset that we have to reset every so often and bring the practices back in because maybe they've gone we've gone wayward with them but Mary it has been such a pleasure to talk to you thank you very much for joining me on Lady Time and I'll just uh, finish up now and say thank you for listening you've been listening to Carol Fitzpatrick talking to Mary O'Callaghan, the director and founder of Uskult. Mary, thank you so much. And I will post on the notes of the podcast uh, about Uskult and about how to contact you. Thank you so much. Great, Carol. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. 
enjoy the day. Thank you. You too.